and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in a continuing study of Paul's great epistle to the Romans, and we are going to start at Romans chapter 2 today. Can you believe it? We made it through the first chapter. Somebody came up to me after class last week and said that they were trying to hire a painter and that the uh, painter was in high demand. And if you didn't get in line, it was going to be a long time before you got the painter to paint your house. And this person's wife said, if we don't hurry up and get this person, Reverend Miller's going to be in chapter 9 of Romans before it actually happens. So I'm beginning to realize that people are now measuring time by our progress through this epistle to the Romans. So I just want you to notice we are at chapter 2. We have made progress. So open your scriptures, please, to Romans chapter 2. Let's go ahead and read through the first 11 verses of this chapter. Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. I want to begin in a slightly different way today rather than just jumping into this text. What I would like you to do is turn to Luke's gospel for just a minute. And I want to give you a picture of what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, the beginning of Romans chapter 2. Pictures are sometimes helpful. Illustrations are helpful. I'm not a big fan of storytelling sermons. Uh, It's just not my style. Mine is more of a teaching style of sermon. But I do realize that sometimes stories can prove illustrative. I describe illustrations as windows. What's the purpose of a window? The purpose of a window is to let the light in. Now, nobody in their right mind wants to have a house that is entirely made of windows, uh, especially if you're getting ready in the morning. Um, uh, You don't like that. Um, 
Unless you're an exhibitionist, you recognize that there is a place for windows. Well, that is what we have here. We have a wonderful window. Jesus provides us with a beautiful picture of exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. It's, of course, one of the Lord's parables, and it's in Luke chapter 18. We're going to go ahead and read through it, and as I said, it is a picture, really, of what Paul is talking about here as he begins this second chapter. And Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That parable, very familiar to us, when Jesus first told it, would have been shocking to the original audience. First of all, the Pharisees did not have the kind of tainted reputation in Jesus' day that they have today. We recognize the Pharisees as those who were the Lord's enemies. They were always out there plotting Jesus' downfall, seeking somehow to entrap him. But in the first century, the Pharisees were a highly regarded sect within the Jewish community. They were the religious ones. And they weren't just the religious ones, they were the conservative ones. They, they would have been the ones who took seriously the Scriptures. Now, if you were here last night and you heard the gospel lesson, you heard about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the liberals of their day. They didn't believe in many things. They didn't believe, for example, in the resurrection of the dead. But the Pharisees believed that. Sadducees only believed in a few books in the Old Testament. The Pharisees believed everything, the law and the prophets, and they took it seriously. They wanted to follow the law of God seriously. They were highly regarded. If you were a man standing in the marketplace with your son and you saw a Pharisee walk through, you might pat, yourself, pat your son on the back and say, now there goes a great man. If you work hard enough, if you train, you might be like him. So the Pharisees were people that were looked up to. Tax collectors, on the other hand, well, this is one place where the first century and the 21st century are the same. Nobody liked tax collectors in those days, and nobody particularly likes tax collectors today, whether they come in the form of individuals or in the form of a government agency. Nobody likes having to pay taxes. And in those days, tax collectors were notorious because they were Jews, but they worked for the Romans. So that automatically made them the enemies of most Jews. They were regarded as traitors because they were working for this pagan empire. And not only that, but they had a reputation for being notoriously dishonest. They would collect more than was actually owed, and they would pocket the surplus. So they made themselves wealthy, but they did that at the expense of their fellow Jews. So tax collectors were absolutely despised. So when Jesus is telling this story about a respectable individual and a tax collector, and the hero of the story turns out to be who? The tax collector. 
At the end of the story, Jesus asks the question, which one of these men went down to his house justified? That is to say, in a right relationship with God. And then Jesus throws out the punchline, I say to you, it was not the Pharisee, but the tax collector. That would have been shocking to his first century audience. And I share that story with you because that is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 2. When he says these words, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know, we've been studying this first chapter of Romans, and it was heavy stuff. It was discouraging stuff. Paul gives us this litany of vices and sins. He starts off, once he gets through the introductory matters, by talking about the wrath of God being poured out upon humanity because of the wickedness of men who, he says, suppress the truth. They're not ignorant of the truth. They know the truth about God, but they suppress the truth. And they begin to worship and serve created things rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. And the result of all of that, the suppressing of the truth, the worshiping of the creature rather than the Creator, is that God does what? He gives them up. God says, you can do it my way or you can do it your way, but if you insist upon doing it your way, I'm going to let you do it your way. And mankind goes off on his own and they engage in this downward spiral in which they begin to sin against God. They begin to sin against nature. They begin to invent ways of doing evil. They're not even satisfied with the conventional ways of doing evil. They're going to create new ways of doing evil. And they get so far down this downward spiral that the ultimate end of it all is a state of moral and ethical insanity where they call evil good and good evil. Now when you call darkness light, lightness dark, when you call evil good, good evil, that is what? That's craziness. That's insanity. And that's exactly where the human race ends up, having embarked on this downward spiral. And it's very easy for us to look at that and despair, isn't it? I mean, let me read just that last paragraph of Romans chapter 1. Not even the really saucy stuff, just, just the last part there. Verses 28 and following. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full with, filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, Maliciousness, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Now let me just ask you a question. Is that an apt description of the culture in which we live? How many of you would agree with that? All right, well keep your finger there in Romans for just a minute and turn over to Philippians, excuse me, 2 Timothy, 
Turn to 2 Timothy for just a minute. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, Paul is speaking to his young friend and protege who's going to be responsible for carrying on his ministry in the world. And Paul is writing these words, words of advice to this young man who's about to be in charge of a church. He's already been in charge of the church in Ephesus, but he's going to step into Paul's shoes and be a leader in the church. And here's what he says. And again, tell me if this sounds familiar to you. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, is that a description of the culture? Is that a description of mainline denominations having the form of godliness, all the trappings of religion but denying its power? How many of you would agree? Yes, this is an apt description of the world in which we live. Of course it is, and we shake our heads in despair. But the problem, Paul says, is that we fail to recognize that those people... And let's be honest, that's generally the way we think of it. Yes, the world is a mess, and, and somebody ought to do something about it. Those people ought to stop living like that. Do they not realize that the wrath of God is about to come upon them? That's what we think. And what Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 2 is that those people are we people. Look again at how he puts it. Therefore, and this comes right on the tail of that long list of vices, that downward spiral, he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Who's the you that he's talking about here? Well, presumably it's us. And we know that in part because he talks about there being no partiality. That's what he goes on to say. God shows no partiality between what? Jews and Gentiles. Some scholars assume that what Paul is talking about here are the Jews who pass judgment on other people. Jews who pass judgment on the Gentiles, that unbelieving Greco-Roman world. And of course, Jews did do that. They regarded themselves as somehow morally superior. And they were given many advantages that the Gentile world did not have. They were given the law and the prophets and the scriptures and that long tradition. But it's not just the Jews. Gentiles were just as guilty as anybody else of passing judgment on others. So what Paul is saying here, oh yes, you can look at the world and you can always see the problems with others. And you can sit there like that Pharisee in Jesus' parable and think to yourself, oh, I'm so thankful that I'm not like other men. I'm particularly thankful that I'm not like those people Listed there in the latter part of Romans chapter 1, I don't do those things. I'm not like those people that Paul describes in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Thanks be to God, that's not me. And those people need to really repent and get their act together. But Paul disabuses us of that idea right away. There are a number of things that Paul says here at the beginning of chapter 2 that we need to note as he unfolds this 
argument. First thing he wants us to understand is that when we pass judgment on other people, when we shake our heads and we point the accusing finger at them, we are in fact condemning ourselves. That's the first thing that he says. Therefore, you have no excuse. You know, people have this extraordinary ability to come up with a limitless number of excuses, don't we? Whenever we do something wrong and we're caught out, generally speaking, what we try to do is make an excuse. How many of you, when you have been accused of something, even when you know you're wrong, the first thing you said is, okay, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Most of us want to give some sort of an excuse, don't we? Well, I, maybe I shouldn't have done that, but. And then follows the excuse. Well, there were extraordinary circumstances. Or you just don't understand what she's like. Or whatever it may be, we come up with all of these excuses, don't we, as to why our behavior, reprehensible though it is, is nevertheless excusable. And what Paul says right from the start is, therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. That's the first thing Paul says. If you think the world is bad, that is right. But if you think you are somehow not complicit in the world's villainy, you really don't understand yourself. We have contributed to the state of the world. We sometimes speak of sins of commission. Those are the things that we do that violate the law of God, but we also speak of sins of omission. Those things that we fail to do. When we see injustice out there in the world and we don't do anything about it, we think to ourselves, well, I'm not guilty because I haven't actually done something, but by failing to do something, you have broken the law of God. So the first thing Paul says is, everyone who judges somebody else condemns themselves. Here's the second thing he says, and it follows on the first. He says, we condemn ourselves because the very standard that we use to judge others is the standard by which we ourselves are condemned. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Moreover, we know that the judgment of God falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them that you will escape God's judgment? Not at all. So when we judge others, we ourselves are condemned, and we're condemned by the very same standard that we use to judge others. Paul is reminding us that every single culture in the world, from the most advanced to the most primitive, has some sort of moral standard. There's really no amoral society. Now, we may not agree with the moral standards of some other societies, but every society has some moral standard. C.S. Lewis talks about this at the very beginning of his book, Mere Christianity. I'll just read to you a couple of paragraphs. Lewis begins that book, 
the first chapter, the first page, with these words. Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say. They say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on. You promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. And children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. Nearly always, he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard. Or that if it does, there is some special, here's the word, excuse. He pretends there is some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it. Or that things were quite different when he was given that bit of orange. Or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play, or decent behavior, or morality, or whatever you like to call it, about which they really agreed. And they have. Paul reminds us that every single society has a standard of morality. And his point is that if you are judging another person, you are obviously invoking that standard of morality, whatever it may be, and he said, the worst part of all is that you're guilty of the same things you're accusing the other person of, and you are judged by your own standard. Now, how does that play out on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, let's just think about some of the standards of morality that we have. The most basic one, the most obvious one, probably in West culture, and not even in Western culture, but in many parts of the world, but especially in Western culture, the basis for most morality, even the basis for many of our civil laws, is the Ten Commandments, right? It used to be, now we're reluctant to do this today, but it used to be that you would see the Ten Commandments on the sides of courthouses. If you go to Adams County, Pennsylvania, as a matter of fact, there is a courthouse in the center of town. And on the front of the courthouse in Adams County, Pennsylvania, are the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Still there to this day. So we understand that the Ten Commandments are, are a standard, a standard most people would agree on, especially the second table of the law. The Fifth Commandment says what? Honor your father and your mother. That's the basis for our civil laws about parental rights. The Fifth Commandment. What's the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not murder. Well, we have laws against murder, don't we? See, we would all agree that, yes, the Ten Commandments are a standard of morality, and people ought to live up to them, and when they don't live up to them, we expect those people to be what? Punished. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, if an adulterer 
does that, well, he ought to be called on it. Thou shalt not murder, well, somebody murders, they ought to be called on it. We want to point them out. But Paul says, if you're judging somebody on the basis of the Ten Commandments, you yourself are condemned by the Ten Commandments. Now, you might think to yourself, well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> I haven't done any adultery. All right, perhaps not. But how many of us can honestly say that we have honored our father and our mother perfectly? I mean perfectly. Let's, let's see a show of hands, those of you. I'm, my mother, as I said, is sitting up here in the front, so I'm not raising my hand because <laughs> I'm condemned already. But... How many of you can honestly say that? Now, you might say to yourself, the, the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not murder. Well, I've never done that. Okay, those of you who think you've never murdered, fast forward to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he condemns us even for anger. He says, if you've even been angry with your brother, you are in danger of hellfire. Or those of us who say, I've never committed adultery either because you've never had the opportunity or whatever it may be, you've never actually done it. You think to yourself, my plate is clean when it comes to that. But Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if you've even looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And as far as God's concerned, you are already condemned. So, how many of us have actually kept the Ten Commandments? Anybody out there kept the Ten Commandments? So when we judge somebody else on the basis of the Ten Commandments, we are condemned by the very same standard that we use, Paul says. Now, somebody might say, well, yeah, I know, the Ten Commandments. But hey, that's the Old Testament. And we are New Testament Christians. So let's put the, the Old Testament aside for just a moment. What about a New Testament standard? Well, let's take a look at the New Testament standard. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. This is the New Testament standard. This is the standard given by Jesus himself. Jesus meek and mild. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 2. I'm not even going to refer to those parts where he said if you've committed adultery in your heart or if you've been angry with your brother. We're just going to look at the Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit means you have no confidence whatsoever in yourself. It's not just to be poor. He's not talking about an economic state here. He's talking about the state of our heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourning here does not mean mourning the loss of a loved one. There are many things in life over which we might mourn. But coming as it does, on the tail of the very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn or those who mourn for their sins. They don't simply acknowledge the fact that they're sinners. They're sorry for it. You've heard me say before, it's one thing to acknowledge, it's another thing to bewail. Again, the kid that gets his hand caught in the cookie jar may be sorry that he got caught, but it doesn't mean he's sorry that he did it. And given the opportunity, if he knew he could get away with it again, he might try it. 
Blessed are those who are meek. What does it mean to be meek? It doesn't mean to be weak here. To be meek simply means that you don't try to avenge yourself. You trust to God. How many of you would ever like to get vengeance on somebody who's done you wrong? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and pursue it like a thirsty man pursues water in a dry land. Blessed are the merciful. When you see somebody down and out on the street in a dire strait, how many times do we walk on by and think to ourselves, he's probably there because he deserves it. Blessed are the pure in heart. Even if you think you've made it up to this point, how many of us actually have a pure heart? Can you really say your heart is pure? Because if you do, you're contradicting Jesus who said the heart is corrupt above all things. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In the Western world, are we really persecuted for the sake of the gospel? Do we really suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ? Or, let's be honest, we do everything in our power to avoid it. Sometimes I think we are so concerned about not offending other people that we actually end up offending the Lord. And that happens in polite society. So if you say, well, I want the Ten Commandments, give me something from the New Testament. Well, there's something from the New Testament. How many of you find yourself condemned by the standard of the Beatitudes? Well, somebody else might say, well, you know, the problem with you preachers is that you're always so legalistic. Give me something a little more basic. How about the golden rule? You know, all right, the Ten Commandments, that's a little, you know, detailed, and, and certainly the, the Sermon on the Mount, that is pretty detailed, but, but the golden rule, I mean, what is the golden rule? I mean, Jesus gives us the golden rule here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, notice how he puts it. He doesn't say, do unto others as they do unto you, or do unto others before they do unto you. What does he say? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Well, how many of us have always, at every point in our life, done unto other people the way we would have them do unto you? I'm not saying we don't agree that that's a good standard. I'm asking the question, how many of us have actually done it? Gone the extra mile. See, we're condemned by the golden rule. We're condemned by the Sermon on the Mount. We're condemned by the Ten Commandments. If we're judging other people by those standards, we've done exactly the same things. And let's just go down to the most basic level, to what some have called the Englishman's virtue. Fair play. Just play fair. How many of us at every point in our lives have always been fair to another person. I'm reminded of the story of John Wesley, 
Uh, Wesley was um, pastoring a church at one point, and he had a member of his congregation who lived in a big house on a large estate, and uh, the man gave nothing to the church. Wesley apparently knew what everybody gave. I just want you to know, for the sake of transparency, that the rector of St. Philip's doesn't know what anybody gives. He's made it a policy not to know what anybody gives because I don't want in any way to be tainted by that. I want to treat everybody the same regardless of what you give. But Wesley knew. (laughs) And he knew that this man lived on a big estate and he didn't give much. And Wesley was a little bolder than some clergy today and he actually went up to the man and confronted him about it. And the man admitted that he had been a churchgoer all of his life but until Wesley came to preach he'd never really been converted to the faith. And he had lived a very loose lifestyle. He had lived a very um, notorious lifestyle, if you will. He was like the prodigal son who went out and squandered his inheritance. And he said the property was actually in Hawk. He owed a tremendous amount of debts. He was buried alive. He was barely able to keep the house and the, the, the grounds. Truth be known, he was actually subsisting on bread and water. All of the servants had been let go. There was nothing there. There was nothing in the estate. And he said, what I'm trying to do is rebuild my life and live as God would have me live. And once I can get back on my feet, I want to give generously to the church. And Wesley realized, oh my goodness, I didn't know what this man was going through. He stood on the outside and presumed to know, but he didn't actually know. And how often do we do that? How often do we sometimes judge another person on the basis of what we see outwardly when perhaps we really don't know what's going on inside? And so what Paul says, going back to Romans chapter 2, is he says, therefore, you, 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 you moral people, you, you upstanding citizens, you respectable folk, you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges another person, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you judge the practice, because you, the judge, practice the very things that they do. So that's the first thing that Paul says here is that if we are passing judgment on another person when we shake our heads in disbelief at how bad the world is and think that somehow we are not complicit, we ourselves stand condemned. Furthermore, he says, we not only stand condemned, but to make matters worse, he says, we presume on God. We presume on God. Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So we judge another person and we stand condemned by our own standard. And not only that, he says, but we presume on the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God. We presume on it. Now, all of those words are important, kindness, patience, 
But the word that I find interesting is the word that's translated forbearance. Forbearance. In Greek, that is actually a military term. And you know what it means? It means a truce. A truce. So two sides have been warring with each other, and they do what? They announce a truce. That is to mean a cessation of hostilities, but a truce is a cessation of hostilities that is what? Temporary. This is not an armistice. This is not a surrender. It is a temporary thing. He said, we are presuming on the patience of God, the kindness of God, and the forbearance of God, the fact that God has, for the moment at least, declared a truce in this war between us and him. But Paul says, the problem with presuming on God and his forbearance is that the truce is temporary. If God wanted to, he could wipe us off in an instant. He chooses not to do it because he's patient and he's kind and he's declared a truce for a time so that what? It might lead us, he says, to repentance. It might lead us to the point where we recognize the error of our ways and we turn back. Now, what I want you to understand is that this is not just the teaching of the Apostle Paul. This is a teaching of Scripture. You know, some people ask the question, well, you know, Jesus is supposed to come back. It's been a long time. I mean, here we are 2,000 years after the ascension, and he hasn't come back yet. And so we have a tendency to get lax, don't we? It's interesting to note that when Jesus appeared the first time, even though people knew that the prophets spoke of the coming Messiah, nobody recognized him. Isn't that what John's gospel said? He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. The very people who should have recognized him, who should have been waiting with bated breath for him to arrive, missed it completely. The only people who recognized or got to see the Messiah when he came were what? Lowly shepherds and some Gentiles who came from the east who were pagan. But the Jews and the Jewish religious leaders in particular, the scribes, the Pharisees, those people, they missed it completely. Because he lingered. And many people think, well, God will be slow. He's not going to come back. He hasn't come back now. And if he does come back, he's not going to come back in my lifetime. So I don't have to worry about any judgment being imminent. Well, what is God doing in a situation like that? Take a look at 2 Peter. Keep your finger there in Romans 2 and turn toward the end of the New Testament to 2 Peter. Again, this is not Paul. This is the other great apostle. We'll start at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord 
is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is what? Patient toward you. That's the same language that Paul uses there in Romans 2. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done in it will be exposed. God will come. He will come suddenly. He will come expectedly. The only reason He hasn't come thus far, the only reason He's tarried, is because He is being patient, hoping that you will take this time, this period of a truce, in order to repent. To recognize that you're as guilty as the rest of humanity and to seek God's face. But the point in both of those passages, in Romans and in Peter, is that this is a temporary forbearance. It is not going to go on forever. At some point, God will act. That's the point that Paul is making here. He will act. And at that point, it will be too late. So he says, what we're doing is we are what? We are presuming on the patience of God, on His kindness, on His forbearance. Here's another thing that Paul says. We are not only condemning ourselves when we judge others, we're not only presuming on God's kindness, His mercy, His forbearance, but we are actually storing up wrath for ourselves. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart. See, he says he's hoping that this period of truce will allow us to repent, but if we refuse to repent and go on living our own way, because of our hard and impenitent hearts, what we are actually doing is storing up wrath for ourselves. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul is now talking to us. He's not just talking about the mass of humanity. And he talks about the mass of humanity. He says about the wrath of God coming upon them. But what he actually says is that for those of us who think we're moral and we stand in judgment of others, we're actually in danger of the very same wrath that the rest of humanity is in danger of. In fact, he says we're storing it up for ourselves. It's the image of water building up behind a dam. Remember when Hurricane Katrina came through and devastated all the levees and the dams in and around New Orleans? That's the impression here, that the water is building up and it's beginning to pour over the top of the dam. You can see that happening in society by all of the terrible things that are happening. And when we fail to repent, what's going to happen is that one day it's going to let loose. And at that point, it will be too late. That's what Paul is saying here. We're storing up wrath for ourselves. Greek word here is orge. It doesn't mean anger, like God flying off the handle. It's God's determined opposition to wickedness and sin. And even though we're uncomfortable with the idea of wrath, if we're honest with ourselves, we all want to believe in it. And we all long for it. Some years ago, 
there was a man, he was a terrible criminal in Philadelphia. He kidnapped women and kept them bound and tortured them in the basement and killed them and dismembered them. It was a terrible thing. It was reported in all the newspapers. It was back, I guess, in the, in the 80s. And uh, eventually, um, one of the women managed to escape and uh, reported this to the authorities. And they arrested the man, and he was tried and ultimately executed by the state of Pennsylvania. Now, here's the really tragic part of all of this. People were, of course, upset with the man. But what they were really upset with was the police force because the police force had been warned by the neighbors that something was not right in that house. But the police, for years, had failed to act because they said they did not have probable cause. And people were angry. Why were they angry? Because justice should have been done. Somebody should have done something about this. The police should have done something about this. They understood that the man was wicked. They were angry because justice was not done. How many of us get angry when we don't see justice done? That's what wrath is all about. Wrath is simply the justice of God. And what Paul is saying is that that justice is about to be meted out, but there is a temporary period of forbearance and what God wants us to do is to repent. Because otherwise, we're storing up wrath for ourselves. And then he goes on to say this. I think this is, for many people, one of the most shocking things of all. He says, beginning in verse 6, for he will render to each one according to to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress from every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul said, when we judge others, we're judging ourselves. We're condemned by the very same standard with which we condemn other people. We're presuming on the patience, kindness, and forbearance of God. We're storing up wrath for ourselves. But when God's justice does break forth, when His judgment does come, and we profess belief in this every Sunday, we say He will come again to what? Judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. That day is coming. Paul says it, Peter says it, the church has said it for 2,000 years. And when it does and the judgment is meted out, the judgment will be on the basis of what? It's right there. On the basis of our works. For he will render to each one according to his works. Now, at this point, somebody wants to throw up their hands and say, no, wait, 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 that can't be right. I mean, isn't Paul the apostle of grace? Isn't it Paul who said that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man may boast? Isn't that what Paul said? Didn't Martin Luther, at the beginning of this whole epistle to the Romans, say that that was the thing that broke upon him, that the just shall live by faith? 
not by works. So what in the world is Paul doing here? Has he lost his mind? Not at all. Paul told you that yes, you are saved by grace through faith and not by works. But Paul would have also said that doesn't mean there's no place for works. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn for just a moment to Ephesians. Because Ephesians is where we hear that great passage, you are saved by grace through faith. Now, of course, Paul is going to go out and unpack that very same doctrine here in the epistle to the Romans in a much fuller way than he does in Ephesians. But what I like about Ephesians is that all of the great doctrines that you find in Paul's other writings are condensed in this one. And here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8, for by grace, we all understand that's God's undeserved, unearned favor, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, it couldn't be clearer than that, could it? By grace, through faith, not by works, so what? No one may boast. But everybody stops there. Everybody stops there. And they don't go on to read the very next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is why I say God has saved us from something, but he has also saved us for something. The whole point of the new birth, which Jesus talked to Nicodemus about, you must be born again, is so that what? We can live a new life. Now, this is not just Paul saying this. Jesus says precisely the same thing. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, he says, you will know them by their fruit. We've talked about this before. You, even if you're not an expert in horticulture, you can tell an apple tree if it's got apples hanging on it. You can tell a Meyer lemon tree if it's got lemons hanging on it. Or you can tell a, an orange tree if it's got oranges or pears or figs or whatever it may be. You can tell it by its what? Its fruit. And that is what Paul is saying here. We are saved by grace through faith, but we are saved from something for something. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved for good works to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. And the evidence that you are now in Christ, the evidence that you are a new creation, are the works. So works are not the means of salvation, but they are the fruit of salvation. And I love the fact that it's described as fruit. If it's a healthy tree, it doesn't work at producing fruit. It is the natural consequence. So if we are in Christ, we will produce fruit. Now, when we talk about fruit, what are we talking about? We're not just talking about good works that the world admires, because as we know, the standards of the world are always changing. But we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, that when you embrace Jesus Christ, you pass from judgment into life eternal. But the Holy Spirit then takes up residence in your life, and he begins a process of renovation. It's like renovating an old house, room by room, until what you have is an entirely new structure. 
So as he begins to renovate your life, he begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life, which is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the more we see those things in our life, the more Christ-like we are becoming. And so what Paul is challenging us to do here at Romans chapter 2 is rather than passing judgment on somebody else, to take a good hard look at our own lives and ask, do I see the fruit of the Spirit? Do I see love? And it's not just love for those who are lovable. Jesus loved those who crucified him. Joy. Are you a joyful person? Peace. Is there peace in your life? Are you a peacemaker? Kindness. Mercy toward others. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Is there self-control? See, that's how you know that you have entered into a relationship with Christ. What Paul does here at the end of Romans chapter 2, the section that we're looking at today, is he introduces us to what has sometimes been described as the doctrine of the two paths or the two ways. This is a biblical notion, but we're familiar with it because it's even out there in the secular culture. How many of you know Robert Frost's poem about the two roads that diverged in the wood one day? If you don't know anything else about Robert Frost, everybody knows that poem at least. Two roads diverged in a wood one day, and I took what? The one less traveled, and that has made all the difference. What is he telling us? That there are two paths that you can take, one path or the other. Two roads diverged, or a road diverged in the wood one day. There you go. That's, that's the two paths. Well, this is a biblical idea, too. It's not something that Robert Frost invented. He probably got it from the Bible. Let me show you a couple of examples of where you see it. Turn back to the book of Psalms. Now, let me tell you something. If you're having a hard time finding where these books are because you're not real familiar with how to, the Bible works, this is an easy one. I'm going to tell you exactly how you find Psalms. Close your Bible, open it up right to the middle. Chances are you're going to hit Psalms or Proverbs. If you hit Job, go to the right. If you hit Proverbs, go to the left. Psalms was right between them. But Psalms is smack dab in the middle of your Bible. Easy book to find. You can always find Genesis, always find Revelation, and now you can find Psalms. <laughs> Psalm 1, the very first Psalm. Look at how the first five verses go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's the first way. That's the first path. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of scoffers. He walks in a different way. But here's the second path. The wicked. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. See, it's the same theme of judgment. Some walk one way, and the consequence of that is judgment. Some walk another way, and the consequence of that is what? He's planted by streams of water. He yields its fruit. There's that language again in its season. His leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Two paths. One way that leads to destruction, one that leads to spiritual prosperity. Jeremiah, toward the end of the Old Testament. A rather gloomy book, to be perfectly honest with you. Jeremiah, chapter 21, verse 8. The prophet is speaking, and he says, And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life, and the way of death. Two paths. Way of life, way of death. And of course, we've already taken a look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but turn back to it again to Matthew chapter 7 for just a moment, verses 13 and 14. And see what Jesus has to say about these two paths. Matthew chapter 7 Verses 13 and 14. Enter the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There you've got it. You've got two paths. One path that leads to life, one path that leads to destruction, one path that is all about judgment and leads to destruction, one path that recognizes your sin and does not presume on the patience of God but repents now and leads to life. Two paths. And here's the great question. Which path are you on? As you look at your fruit or lack thereof, you have to honestly ask the question, and do not fool yourself. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. Do not fool yourself into thinking that you're on one path if you are not. How will you know? By taking a look at the works in your life. That's the only way you can tell. Which path are you on? Because eventually there will be judgment, and then it will be clear to everybody which path you are on. You can look at that passage from Matthew 25 for yourself, but it's the story of the greatest size, the great separation, where Jesus takes them and he's, well, let's just look at it. Why not? It's too important to let go. So turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 25 because it makes the point beautifully. This is the picture of the final judgment. This is Jesus' picture of the final judgment. Beginning at verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, 
and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now, this is judgment, the day of wrath. And he's going to separate every single one of us, like a, separate, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep obviously get placed on the right hand, they get to go in. The goats on the left hand, they don't get to go in. How do you know whether you're going to be a sheep or a goat? Well, listen to what Jesus says here. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. That the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? If Jesus were to show up here today, and we recognize him, would we treat him well? The question he would ask is, I'm here all the time. Are you treating me well? Well, how do we know if we treated you well? Well, look at what he says. Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. For I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That judgment is on the basis of what? Our works. Now again, works do not get you into heaven, but they are the consequence. They are the result of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I know I'm going to go about three minutes over if you'll just hang in there with me because some of you may be sitting out there in despair at this point and thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, I'm on the wrong path. And if that's the case, I want to answer the question, how do I get on the right path? Again, don't fool yourself. Don't assume simply because you go to church that that's enough. Paul's pretty clear here. Jesus is pretty clear here. Peter's pretty clear here. If you're on the wrong path, and only you can decide that for yourself. I can't decide that for you. I can't tell you if you're on the wrong path. I don't know your heart. But if you discover you're on the wrong path and you want to get on the right path, what do you need to do? Well, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis, very helpful. He said, we all want progress. But progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. 
And if you take a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. In other words, to continue on the path, if you realize you're on the wrong path, is not going to get you closer to your destination. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We have all seen this when we do arithmetic. When I have started to sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start over again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed. I love that. There's nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. So if you're going to get on the right path, the first thing you've got to do is recognize you're on the wrong path. And whatever you're doing is not going to get you where you want to be in the end. The second thing you've got to understand is that the path that you're on is not going to change. In other words, sometimes you're driving on the road and you miss the turnoff. And if you're anything like me, you don't want to admit that. And so you just keep driving. But I've got this female voice in my car. And no, it's not my wife. It's the GPS who keeps saying to me until I just shut her off, make a U-turn if possible. Make a U-turn if possible. In 500 yards, make a U-turn if possible. And I go right on by it. In 1,000 feet, make a U-turn if possible. In two miles, make a U-turn if possible. Sometimes we think, well, if I just stay on this path, there'll be another way to get back on the right path. There is no way to get back on the right path. These two paths are going in opposite directions. So if you want to get on the right path, you've got to recognize you're on the wrong path. You've got to recognize that path will not change. You have to stop. And you might as well, as Lewis said, stop sooner rather than later. Because if you think you can stop later, you are presuming on the patience and the kindness and the truth of God. And we don't know when the judgment is coming. So you stop and you turn around. And this is the word for repentance, metanoia, to have a change of mind which results in a change of heart, which results in a change of direction, you turn around and you turn to Jesus Christ and you commit yourself to Jesus Christ. Turning to Jesus Christ puts you on the right road. All right? That gets you off the bad road. That gets you on the right road, off the wrong road, rather, onto the right road by turning to Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way. I'm the way to the Father. But then there's something else that you have to do. You have to follow him. You have to follow him. That's the beginning of the journey. Entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ is the beginning of the journey. And that journey does not end until he 
in his time calls you home. So that's the beginning of the journey. So you want to get off the wrong path. You don't see the fruit in your life. Recognize you're on the wrong path. Recognize that the wrong path is not going to change. You're only going to get further and further away from your destination. Stop, turn around, and come to Jesus Christ. Acknowledge your sin before him. Ask for his mercy and his forgiveness and begin to obediently follow him now until the day that he calls you home, recognizing that all of a sudden your destination has changed. You are no longer on the path that leads to destruction. As Bunyan put it in Pilgrim's Progress, you are now on the road to glory, to the celestial city. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul's words here in Romans. We come to the end of that first chapter, and it is so easy to take a look at it and stand in judgment of the world, thinking that's the world out there, it's those people, it's not us. But Paul reminds us we are complicit. Whatever standard we are using to judge the world or to judge others, we are condemned by the same standard. We're all on the wrong path. Nobody's okay. Grant us the grace to recognize this, to not presume on your patience and kindness, but to recognize the only reason that you have tarried is because you are patient, longing no one to be destroyed but to be saved. If we're on the wrong path, grant us the grace to recognize it, not to fool ourselves, but to recognize it, to stop, to turn to Jesus begin to follow him, the bishop and shepherd of our souls, all the way to our final destination. For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you.